May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. If you've, um, if you've ever read through Mark's Gospel, uh, you find out uh, straight away that Jesus is constantly being challenged on his legitimacy. There's always somebody who's, who's throwing up sort of a roadblock. Are, are you really qualified to do this job? You know, are, are, you, are you legit? Um, and, and Mark also wants you, the reader, to answer a question. Well, if he is legit, why is he legitimate? I mean, what is it about Jesus, who is he more specifically, that gives him this legitimacy? That's the question Mark just keeps stirring in your mind as you read through his gospel. Who is Jesus? Who is he? And he's, and this kind of comes out in this, uh, this attack on his legitimacy where he has all of these oppressors. He is constantly dogged by jealous sectarians. Um, sort of like, um, like splinter political parties within Israel in the ancient world. They were, they were closely tied. In our world, we sort of, we sort of separate um, politics from religion, or at least try to. In, in the ancient world, no such uh, you know, division existed. It was closely tied, one's religious beliefs and one's political uh, views. And so he has these groups that are out there. Um, you've perhaps heard their names as you've read through. They're the group called the Scribes. And they're like, um, they're like scholars. They're, they're university-style t- professors who are learned in the Bible. They, they understand the intricacies of, uh, of the Hebrew Scriptures. They, they understand um, all sorts of uh, text and context issues and can, can debate uh, at length about why a text was written and in what situation and what the, the, um, the author's, uh, usually Moses' intent, is. There are close friends that they have called the Pharisees. These are the... Um, the, the strictly uh, religious kind of traditionalist. They're the holier-than-thou group, you know. And, and so the Pharisees and the scribes are, are close buddies. They're, they're, they're hand-in-glove working together. And often you'll see their names kind of connected. And the scribes and Pharisees and the scribes and Pharisees or the Pharisees and the scribes because they sort of work, uh, work together. There's a group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees run the temple in Jerusalem, the sort of central meeting place. They're very wealthy. They're not really against the Romans like the scribes and Pharisees are. They actually kind of like the Romans because the Romans put them in place and gave them a position that allowed them to make themselves wealthy and to maintain that wealth and power. So the Sadducees are sort of um, religious Jews who are not really against the Roman uh, occupation and, and set up. So th- they kind of work together with the, with the Romans, which means the Sadducees and the Pharisees are kind of at odds with one another. And, and then there's the Herodians. Uh, Herod is a puppet king of Rome, and he has a certain group of people that kind of hang around him. They would be like the Sadducees and sort of against the Pharisees. And here's what you find happening throughout Mark's gospel. Unlikely bedfellows meeting up and, and challenging Jesus. You know, the, your, your enemy's enemy is your friend, right? And so the, you, they, they partner up, and you see groups like the Pharisees and the Herodians teaming up. They would be natural enemies, and yet here they are teaming up against Jesus, Sadducees and Pharisees, and so on. Mark tells us early on in his book, in chapter 3, he says this, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus in order to destroy him. So they're, they're meeting up with these uh, political opponents because they have a mutual enemy in Jesus and they want to get after him. 
And so throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus is dogged by these people who want to do this. He also finds himself constantly being, um, and, and I mean this in the most gentlest way, harassed by people who need him. There are people who constantly are, you know, knocking at his door. You know, is, is Jesus here? You know, not at his door, somebody's door, wherever he's staying. Can, can he come and, and help? I, you know, my child, my, my daughter, you know, my, my wife. Somebody is, is in need and they need him. And so he's constantly being harassed by them. And he, he finds himself in a situation where he's fleeing into the mountains, Mark often says, for a time of, of quiet and tranquility. If you read through this and you begin to look for these sort of things happening in Jesus' life, you have this natural tendency to feel sorry for him. I mean, my word, you know. Uh, he, he's constantly being pursued by people, and, and he could certainly use a little rest. And today's gospel lesson is no different. The usual suspects show up, don't they? Here are the Pharisees. They want to see how devout Jesus is, but Mark tells us, did you see it? They were testing him. They were, it wasn't just a test like you, know, you would take for a university exam or something like that. It wasn't, it wasn't a sort of test like, oh, well, let's see how much you really do know, that sort of thing. No, this is a sort of test like, let's see if we can trip you up. I mean, have you ever been asked that sort of question by somebody? You, you know they're asking, and their motives are to make you say something stupid so that they can laugh at you. This is sort of what's happening here. They, they come to Jesus, and they want to ask him a question. Then there's a short section where Jesus is with his disciples, and then the last one, there are families who are bringing their children to Jesus. Again, back to this sort of needy, desperate families and people. And Mark sets this juxtaposition up so that you can sense the sort of internal angst that Jesus must have in dealing with all of these different situations. I think they're all connected, though. I think they're connected by this. You know, those who want to test Jesus and trip him up and those who are desperate for his help. And Mark wants us to juxtapose these in our minds so that we see what's a proper approach to dealing with issues of humanity. Well, the first one comes the Pharisees, right? They want to know. Is it lawful to divorce your wife? I mean, can you just do this? Can you just, you know, toss her off the side and, you know, marry someone else? Is that okay? Is that permissible? And, you know, in, in the ancient world, there were, um, there were lots of debates about this. Um, Moses gave a commandment in, in Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her out of her hand, and sends her out of his house. What's the matter? What, what, does he, what does Moses mean in decency in her? And so there's a big debate in ancient Israel about that. Um, a lot of people said, uh, you know, it's a matter of a, a spouse who's unfaithful. You know, it was always a woman who, who was the subject of it. She was never in control of the situation. It was always a, a man divorces his wife, not the other way around in this. But... Um, but in the ancient world, there's a debate among the Pharisees, the devout. What does it mean to, uh, to divorce? Can you, can you do it for any reason? And you heard Jesus' answer, right? What did Moses command you? And they said Moses allowed to a man to write a certificate of divorce, uh, dismissal and divorce her. This is, what, this is what we're permitted to do. And Jesus says, this isn't the way it ought to be. Later he huddles with his friends and they're like, really? You can't divorce for any reason? You, you, like, you read this and you mark, you don't see that. But it's clearly the question that they're raising. Is there no opportunity, no reason for a divorce? And Jesus says, 
to them this um, this line uh, that uh, he says, for this reason a man shall leave, um, excuse me, but, but from the beginning of creation God made them male and female, for this reason a man should leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It was both our Old Testament lesson then and our gospel lesson, right? So no longer it's two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. His point, of course, is that people should thrive in marriage. They want to talk about divorce, and he's saying, I think that people should thrive in marriage. But I think there's a real hang-up in the way that people understand what Jesus is saying. See, there's a, this is a grammatical issue. This is where the scribe jumps in and says, but wait. There is, in Greek, what's called an era subjunctive in this case. Okay? And so here's how I translate Jesus' words. He said to them, his disciples, whoever divorces his wife in order to marry another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband in order to marry another, she commits adultery. Eugene Peterson does the same sort of thing. He translates to this. A man who divorces his wife so he can marry someone else. A woman who divorces her husband so she could marry someone else. This is a, this is a purpose. It's an intentionality. It goes to motive. Whoever cast away their spouse in order because they found somebody that they like better, they're committing infidelity. It has to do with motive. This is where you might push back against me, but I think I'm right. If you look at the whole text of Scripture, you look at the whole conversation that goes on, and Jesus' input in this, I do not think he is outlawing divorce. I don't think that's what he's doing at all. I think he's saying men have a duty to love their wives, and wives have a duty to love their husband. But he is not saying that if somebody is in a marriage that's abusive or chronically unfaithful or any of that sort of nonsense, that they are, they are destined or duty-bound to stay in that marriage. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think he's saying to these men who want to, to, to test him, to prove his, his lack of, of credentials and, and his lack of legitimacy, he's saying to them, you want to just cast your wives aside, and they are the most vulnerable people in society, women and children in the ancient Near Eastern world. You who just want to cast your wives to the side so you can find somebody else, that is not faithfulness to God. Not at all. And so it, it sort of turns the whole conversation on its head. There are times when divorce is necessary, where it has to happen for the safety of an individual, for the dignity of an individual. And, I, you know, as a, as a priest, I'm in, in counseling situations with people where I could not in good conscience tell them to stay in a place where they are, um, they are in an abusive situation or a dangerous one or one that is just that is this toxic. That's not good advice, and I don't think it's biblical advice either. But if someone comes to me, as one person did one time, was in love with another person, and says, you know, I can just divorce my wife, and uh, I want to marry this other person, and, you know, God forgives, and I sin, it's a good arrangement, and so, uh, you know, I'm just going to go off and do this. And, and, you know, I put it back, no, that is presumptuous sin. That is, that is a sin of a high hand. You don't get away with that. Whether you make it to heavens, I don't know about that, but I can assure you this. There is retribution in this world for doing stuff like that. You will find all sorts of difficulty. Jesus is not outlawing divorce. He's saying that marriage needs to be valued. That's what he's saying. Don't forget it's an answer to a trick question.
and listen to him in his culture, not in ours. Because the same thing sort of happens when they bring children to Jesus. What do the disciples do? The disciples get in the way and they're like, no, 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 he's way too important for children. Shoo those children away. Because children are at the lowest rung of the social ladder. And I know this is awful for us to think about because in our culture we value children. We value children because Jesus valued children. And he has transformed cultures in order to see children the way they ought to be. But in his world they were not valued. The word in Aramaic for child and slave was virtually the same word. I think I told you maybe last week or a couple weeks ago, I kind of know something about that. You know, when I was a kid, I was the remote control. You know, my mother would say, you know, like our kids think that TVs are always turned by remotes. I was the remote. You know, my mother would go turn it to channel two, you know, and I'd get up, I'd go turn it to channel two. Oh, no, I don't want to watch it. Turn it to channel seven. And then I'd get back up and turn it. Children and slaves were on the lowest social rung. Guess who was right above them? Women. I mean, then you had all other sorts of, of people who were in different castes of society. And, and it's, you know, the, the patriarch, the man at the top. And Jesus is saying, you have a value system that is all wrong. These people on the bottom of society are the people that God loves. And they're valued and they, they, they embody the kingdom. And so he, don't, don't hinder these children. Let them come to me. And he brings them to himself. The biblical imperative in both of these lessons, both of these things, is this, that people matter. They matter. Every human being matters. They matter to God. And they ought to matter to us. It's easy to get frustrated about things and forget that people matter more than things. The hardest thing about being a, a, a clergyman, you want to know what the hardest thing about being a clergyman? Is all this comes back to me. <laughs> it all comes back to me. I get to, I get to be the first recipient of this sermon, okay, in my head and in my life. And so as soon as I know what the main point is, oh, I just am, I am weary about what that week is going to be like. You know what that week is like for me this week? You know, um, I loan somebody a little piece to my computer that I need in about 20 minutes, you know, and, and I don't know where it is because I don't think it got back to me. Ooh, man, I, that is so frustrating. Um, I had to go to something yesterday uh, that I wasn't really planning, that you know, I didn't really think about, so I, I took all my vestments, I had to put them in the car and drive to it, and don't you know I drove a different car this morning? So here I am in low churchman garb. You would know, you don't care, it doesn't matter, right? But it matters to me because I'm not that, you know, and so I'm frustrated. Oh, you know, here I am stomping my foot in the pulpit, right? People matter more than things. They do. People matter more than things. Today is the feast day of St. Francis of Assisi. Maybe you know this, that St. Francis was the son of a wealthy businessman. He stood to inherit a lot of money. And, um, and, and Francis one day hears this, hears this uh, audible call of God. And he says, Francis, the call is, Francis, go repair my church. So Francis hired a bunch of carpenters. <laughs> and he started working on parishes in the neighborhood. And the call comes back to Francis, Francis, repair my church. And he realizes it has nothing to do with the building. Do you know why? Because the building is not the church. 
people are the church. And so Francis gave up all of his wealth, gave away it all, and said, I will be a poor missioner to the poor, to the poorest of the poor. And he went about repairing the church, the church that had become corrupt through, through a, a, a um, passion for things instead of people. And he writes this prayer, this prayer at least that is attributed to him, and it goes like this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, great grant that I might that I may not so much seek to be counseled as to counsel, to consult, to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. I think Francis gets it. I think he understands what really matters. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.